This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Thank you so much for listening to Code Switch. We really want to get a better understanding of who's listening and how you use podcasts. So please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash Code Switch survey. That's one word. It takes less than 10 minutes and it really helps support the show. That's npr.org slash Code Switch survey. Again, one word. All right, y'all, just a heads up. The following podcast contains explicit language. One little word. (laughs) I'm Gene Demby. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates, sitting in for Shireen, and this is Code Switch. From NPR. The COVID-19 pandemic has left us all with a lot of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. We're trying to check on our loved ones. We're worried about our next paychecks, our jobs, our physical health. And we're not even sure what COVID-19 is doing to us. We're not sure how it works or like why some people who have COVID-19 don't have any symptoms. And that's even as this coronavirus continues to kill thousands and thousands of people in the United States every day. We all have so many questions right now. Mm-hmm. So this is Ask Code Switch, the pandemic edition. If y'all been rocking with us for a minute, you already know the deal. Ask Code Switch is where we tackle your questions. We put out a call out for your questions around race and identity in this particular moment we're living in. And y'all asked us some tough questions about the pandemic, obviously, and the fissures and frailties in our society that our response to this moment has exposed. Yeah, and it's stuff like spatial distancing you know we're very aware of that six foot buffer that we need to keep and when it doesn't get kept sometimes violence ensues Mm -hmm. because people are scared um you know you used to get a side eye if you walked down the street and somebody coughed and didn't cover their mouth now they might get assaulted because people are frantic they're afraid of dying they're not exactly sure how this virus is transmitted and they don't want to take any chances right that's right i mean It's all of these anxieties that people had in the pre-coronavirus world, heightened by potentially fatal illness. If you cough on me, am I going to die? That's like something to contemplate. Right, exactly. So it's the little things and the big things. I mean, KGB, you've been appending all your emails to us uh, with wash your hands and your email signature. (laughs) Well, it's just my phone emails. You won't see those on my official NPR emails, although it's a thought. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) enough of my hand-washing obsession Let's do what we're here to do. People sent in some great questions about race and the Rona. Gene, our first question is about the responsibility of allyship. It's from a listener named Jacqueline. Here's her question. I always take my friend grocery shopping with me because she doesn't have a car. She started going incognito, covering her face with a mask and a hat so that other shoppers might not notice that she's Asian. She started doing this after a friend of hers was deliberately coughed on. And Jacqueline said she didn't quite know how to respond to that. But I said, people are stupid. I'm sorry this is happening. I support you doing whatever you feel is necessary to be safe. And if anyone messes with you, they're going to have to deal with me. I feel like my constant, I'm sorry, white people are so dumb, is overused and unhelpful. What are the things that I as a white person should or should not say and do and... What should I do if someone does harass my friend? 
we did a whole episode on the history of pandemics and disease and how that is often racialized. Coronavirus, of course, is leading to this rise in anti-Asian sentiment. The president of the United States uh, was calling it the Wuhan virus to connect to China. And so there was a rise of anti-Chinese sentiment and anti-Asian sentiment more broadly, uh, even though the as far as we know, the disease did not come to the United States from China. Um, this is also an allyship question, which is a genre of question we get a lot, as you might imagine. But KGB, what are your thoughts about Jacqueline's question here? Jacqueline's friend is not super paranoid to be worrying about this. I talked to Jeff Yang. I think you probably know him. He's a journalist and a writer. And he'd had the exact same experience that Jacqueline said her friend was worried about having. You said exact same experience, like personally? Yeah. Uh, He told me that while he was in line recently to get into a grocery store, and he noticed he was the only Asian in the line, Uh a white woman glared at him, pulled down her mask, cursed at him, and coughed on him before getting into her car and driving away while everybody was sort of looking around like, huh, did that just happen? Oh, my God. People are so foul. That's disgusting. Yep, it is. Oh, my God. Uh, He said it took him a minute to process it. But when he got home later that day, he tweeted about it happening. And that tweet went viral. Viral. Really, Karen? No pun intended. I'm sorry. Really? (laughs) Yeah, so a lot of the response to his tweet came from white folks, he says. Some of it was apologies on behalf of the offender. Uh Some telling him he was just too paranoid, you know, seeing race and everything, insisting on choosing victimhood. Yeah, of course, obviously, yeah. Yeah, that's how it goes. And Jeff has some strong feelings about that. This is dangerous at a a level which we haven't seen, I think, in in generations. This is the language of war. Jeff says the language coming from some of our leaders singles out an ethnic group simply because of its ancestry and implies that Asian Americans are not real Americans. This is painting a target on millions of Americans and I'm not sure at all that Trump and others who are using this language aren't entirely aware of it. It's incumbent on us, all of us, to speak up in a much louder and more collected voice about where the rhetoric is heading. Because when stuff pops off, you need a few things. And one of them is validation that the thing you experience actually happened, that you're not bugging or being overly sensitive it almost reminds me of that Dave Chappelle joke about how something pops off and sometimes you can't even pull it together to respond outside of to just be stunned that it happened. Have you ever had something happen that was so racist that you didn't even get mad? You were just like, God damn, that was racist. That was racist. <laughs> On a basic level, sometimes you just need somebody to be there to be like, yes, indeed, that was in fact racist. Jeff says be a monitor, an observer. And if you can catch someone in the act in a little phone video, document it. Not every assailant cares, but you'd be surprised how many just sort of creep away when they think they're going to be on the interwebs. So, Jacqueline, keep your phone handy. And obviously, Jacqueline, uh, if you're trying to be an ally, you got to remember you are obligated to step up. It's not it's not really optional. But also, even if nothing pops off, um, the supermarket is clearly a space of anxiety for your friend right now. So she might just be comforted to know that she has a buddy with her when she goes out in public. And of course, she will know specifically what she needs. I think this is true of all the ally questions we get. Like, the most effective allyship is going to be what your friend says. Like, not in the abstract, but like what she specifically says will be most helpful to her. So make sure you ask her what she needs so you can show up for her when she needs it. 
Well, thank you, Jacqueline. I hope this helped. All right, after the break. I have watched so many of my people out and about like nothing is happening. Can we convince them to stay home? We'll get to that and more in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Face masks have become the new normal as we continue to grapple with the ongoing pandemic. But when did we start wearing masks for our health and safety? This week on Throughline, the origins of the N95 mask and how it became the life-saving tool it is today. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. Karen. Jean. Code switch. All right, y'all. So this next question comes to us from a listener named Mark Love Williamson. I'm calling about the response to the coronavirus for the Native American communities. Here in New Mexico, more than half of the cases are in the Native American community, and they represent less than 20% of the population. Mark notes that the death rate is many times what it is among other populations. And the sad truth is, is that Indian health services and infrastructure development have been underfunded for decades, and I'm I'm wondering why the government isn't responding strongly and aggressively. Mark points out the way the virus is hitting this community particularly affects the people who are the repositories of the community's institutional knowledge, their older generation. He wants to know what's being done. To stop what amounts to a cultural genocide as elderly people succumb to this virus and and much cultural knowledge is, is lost. Yeah, so this isn't really an advice question, but more a question about what we know, what we don't know, and why we're not paying attention. So, okay, let's back up a little bit. The Indian Health Service was established by the federal government as part of some treaty agreements with hundreds of Native tribes. The IHS is supposed to provide public health care to people who belong to an Indian nation who have membership. All you have to do is show proof of tribal membership. But like so many agreements with Indigenous nations and the U.S. federal government, the U.S. federal government did not hold up its end of the deal. The federal government spends about $3,000 per person on health care in Indian country, while it spends closer to 9000 on veteran health and $12,000 on Medicare. That's Laura Morales. She's a reporter at the Fronteras Desk, a public radio collaborative project that covers the Southwest. Laurel is based in Flagstaff, Arizona, near the Navajo Nation, which is one of the largest Native tribes in the country. She says that while the federal government gave a little over a billion dollars in pandemic relief to the IHS and another $600 million to the Navajo Nation, 
that's just a drop in the bucket compared to the many, many billions of dollars that these communities need for medical care and for infrastructure. Because Navajo Nation is poor. In some places, chronic unemployment is near 50%. And many people on the reservation don't have electricity or running water. But what makes dealing with a crisis like this even trickier there is the size of Navajo Nation. The Navajo Nation is the size of West Virginia. And it spans across three states, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. There are 350,000 Navajo people, but 170,000 people live on the Navajo Nation. 170,000 people spread across a region the size of West Virginia. So it's vast and pretty remote. Yes? Right. I mean, everyone is really spread out. Laurel said that families on the reservation often live miles from their nearest neighbors. And so when coronavirus first made its way to the United States, there was this sense that that remoteness might help stem the spread because people were so far apart. And the tribe shut down everything really early on to get ahead of it. But as we found out, the opposite has turned out to be true. When we talked to Laurel in early May, there were about 2,750 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 88 deaths. Laurel said that's not counting some of the border towns near the reservation. So Navajo Nation by itself accounts for more than half of all the COVID cases in Indian country. Per capita, after New York and New Jersey, the Navajo Nation is third in terms of infection rate. Which would indicate to me that something is seriously wrong there. Yeah. I mean, for one, the size means that for a lot of people, staying at home is just not a feasible option. So here's one example. We talked about food deserts before, right? Right. On this reservation, it's another beast entirely. There are only 13 grocery stores on this reservation. Again, in an area the size of West Virginia. So day-to-day life means being out in the world for hours at a time to get the things you need to get by. I spoke to one woman, a Navajo woman who calls herself the runner in the family, and she's doing it all. You know, when the schools were providing lunches, she was picking up lunches for the the kids at school, and then a lunch for her mother, who's an elder from the senior center, and then um, hauling water, which was um, a 45-minute drive, and then waiting in line to dump her trash because they, you know, they don't have any trash service was running. Every one of those places is a potential contact point for other people who may be infected. Laurel said that woman had to decide whether it was more important for her to dump her family's trash or whether she had to get back in the car and drive so she could fetch water for her family or go to the grocery store before a mandatory curfew that's been imposed around the pandemic, which lasts all weekend, before that curfew went into effect. She was exhausted and she had a, a full-time job on top of that. She was trying to hand wash her clothes She typically goes to the laundromat, but she wanted one less place where she could possibly expose her family to the infection. Yeah, I'll bet she's exhausted. And if the reservation is a food desert, that means people are going to be less healthy because of how hard it is to get the right kind of food, Mm -hmm. you know, healthy food. Right, exactly. And we know that these underlying conditions from bad nutrition are one of the things that are helping accelerate this virus. There's another thing that is sort of catalyzing this crisis that is particular to Navajo Nation. And it's that many, many people are immunocompromised because they live near land that has been literally rendered radioactive. From 1944 to 1986, mining companies blasted 30 million tons of uranium out of Navajo land when the energy department, the U.S. Energy Department, had stockpiled enough for the Cold War. The companies left, um, abandoning 
more than 500 mines. I think it's 521 mines. And then since then, many Navajo have died of conditions linked to uranium contamination. Wow. And again, in a region the size of West Virginia, there are about the same number of IHS healthcare centers as there are groceries. So there are 12 IHS centers on the entire reservation, and most of those are outpatient clinics. And so there are three hospitals on Navajo that have inpatient beds and ICU units and actually our staff, you know, 24-7 and work like of what you would imagine a typical hospital to work. So in Navajo Nation, the IHS is overextended, it's under-resourced, and Laurel said the IHS centers are full of really dedicated doctors and nurses who are creative and good at improvising, you know, because they have to be. But they're trying to fight the spread of a contagious virus that is stretching hospitals to the breaking point, even in places with things like paved roads and running water. And so to get back to Mark's question, it behooves us all to pay more attention to what's happening in Indian country, not just right now, but even after coronavirus recedes from the headlines. And to get some insight on who we should be paying attention to, I decided to holler at one of Coastwitch's play cousins, Graham Lee Brewer. He's a reporter at High Country News. You can hear his voice sometimes on NPR. What's good, Graham? Hey, what's up, Gene? Okay, so give us some native sources that we should be paying attention to. So when it comes to understanding better Indian country, it's just like any other localized reporting in the country writ large. Uh, I I tell people to look at the local sources, and in this case, it would be tribal newspapers. Um, For the Navajo Nation in particular, which has become a hot zone for COVID-19, the Navajo Times is an excellent source. They have excellent reporters who are part of those communities. I'd look to Arlissa Basenti and Polly Dinatclaw in particular. Um, If you go a little bit further north and look at what's happening with Governor Nome, who has been trying to circumvent tribal sovereignty um, with the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe, who's been locking down their reservation, uh, that standoff has been covered really well by the West River Eagle, um, in particular, Elena, beautiful bald eagle. I think she's been doing a really good job of staying on top of that issue. Um, And then you also have people like uh, Savannah Maher, who is covering um, the Cheyenne River Sioux um, reservation for uh, Wyoming Public Radio. And then if you take a broader look, there's all sorts of Native reporters who are covering it on a national level. Um, I think Antonia Gonzalez at National Native News has been doing a really good job of compiling what is happening. And um, and then you also have um, uh, Christine Trudeau, who she just hired to help her specifically cover this pandemic. Um, so there's a lot of options, but I would really encourage your listeners to try to localize that as much as they can, because there's a good chance that the tribe that's near them that they're concerned about has a tribal paper with reporters who are covering it every day. Thank you so much, Graham. Appreciate you, bro. Absolutely. Graham Lee Brewer is a reporter for High Country News, and you can hear his voice on NPR. Okay, what else have we got today? All right, so on our website, we've got a lot of your questions. Our assistant editor, Natalie Escobar, has been sifting through all of those, reporting them out along with our intern, Diane Luga. Natalie is here and joining us for her inaugural appearance on the Coast Switch podcast from her luxurious bedroom closet. Yay! <laughs> Welcome, Natalie, to the Federation of Closet Broadcasters. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. All right, Natalie, so uh, what does our inbox look like? What kind of questions are you getting? I imagine that they are all over the map. Yeah, so a lot of them are about data, um, and a lot of questions are like this one that we got from a high schooler from North Carolina named Ama Kwabia. She asked, So to me, it feels like we don't have much of a social safety net, and that much of what we do have is tied into schools. 
meals, laundry, emotional support, even healthcare to an extent. How are we seeing kids of different races being impacted by this lack of protection differently? That's a good question, Natalie. So... So the answer to that is that it's been bad for kids of color. Like, really bad. Mm-hmm. Diane talked to Michelle Burris from the Century Foundation, which is a progressive think tank that researches education and the economy. And Amma's question hits right at what they've been finding. Two things that are particularly bad right now are food security and Internet access. Right. So we know that Black and Latinx and Native households, as we just heard, are much more likely to be food insecure. Right. And as Alma said, schools have been lifelines for getting many kids nutritious food. Right. Free and reduced price lunch and school breakfast programs serve millions of kids. And those programs have been disrupted as schools have closed. Yeah, our friends on Team Ed, that's NPR's education desk, have been reporting on what schools have been trying to do about this. Yeah, and across the country, that's looked like things like grab-and-go food programs where students can pick up meals and snacks from a curbside, and even home delivery from school buses. Mm -hmm. And Congress has stepped in, too. There's a provision in a coronavirus aid bill that will take the value of those school meals and transfer the money directly to families. Those are families whose children receive those free or reduced-priced meals. Hmm. Okay, so what about Internet access? So as schools have been transitioning to online learning, not everybody has the Internet. This is especially true for students of color. Michelle Burris from the Century Foundation talked to a teacher in St. Louis, and that teacher said that all of her students are Black, and only around a quarter of them can log into her Zoom classes every day. Because her students don't have laptops at home and the libraries where they'd normally go to use them are closed, right? Yeah. So now school and even government officials have started to encourage families to park their cars near places with Wi-Fi so that their kids can get work done. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but that's the situation we're in. It's far from ideal. And you're basically asking people to be outside, too. Yeah. People are doing what they have to do in order to try to get done what they need to get done. Right. And this is the thing we've talked about before, like, you know, in our Ron Brown reporting, is that the roles that schools play in certain communities goes way beyond learning. They have to do all this other work, you know, to give kids security. But Natalie, you have another question for us, right? Yeah. And this one's asking for advice. So I thought I'd throw it to you, too, as well. Um, so this one's from Althine Cortez, and she's from Philly. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> of course. And her question is this. Many of my Black and Latinx family members are having trouble believing the severity of COVID-19. There's very little trust for the government and the medical community. With the context of our history, I understand their feelings and share them too. However, I also believe social distancing is required to get through this pandemic. I have watched so many of my people out and about like nothing is happening. Now, this week, several close family members have been hospitalized with COVID-19. How can we survive if only some of us heed these warnings? Can we convince them to stay home? This is too real. You know, it's funny. We just had this same issue come up in one of our recent episodes from the census. Yep. (laughs) So a lot of my advice to people in this situation is, you know, help your family don't lecture them. They might be confused about what's safe, especially because every state has different guidelines and there's a lot of conflicting information out there. True. Yeah. And like the information is conflicting. And also it's all like moving targets. Like since this mess has started, 
what we know about coronavirus and how it works and who is vulnerable and what the symptoms are has seemed to change from week to week, if not day to day. Like even for those of us who think of ourselves as staying up on everything and trying to take this thing very seriously, everything is so confusing, you know? Yeah. So, you know, you got to work with that information on top of the long history of government and medical officials not doing right by people of color. Mm -hmm. So here's what I've been doing. Tell them it's better to be super safe than sorry and help them get the stuff they might need. You know, the masks, the hand sanitizer and the disinfecting wipes. So that way it doesn't sound like you're scolding them. And make sure your folks are following fact-based, reputable news sources. One pundit saying that social distancing is unnecessary can do a lot of damage. And let them know that you still have to remind yourself to distance, Mm -hmm. to stay behind the line at the grocery store, to let the delivery guy put down that package and leave the front porch before you rush out to pick it up. You know, distance. It's hard to remember. But, you know, it's family and you miss them, I guess, you know, when they're not getting on your nerves. <laughs> you know, try to reiterate that they should say, hey, on the phone or through some other mediated means. And in Philly, if you live nearby, you can stand across the street and to be six feet away because our streets <laughs> are so damn narrow. Um, you can wave to your folks. You can do that. You can swing by without being that close. Yeah, and I know I'm old, Jean, but there actually is another way from past times. Make a card or send a letter, like through the mail delivered by the U.S. Postal Service, which is doing an incredible job during this pandemic. Tell your parents, your nana, your siblings, your best friend that you love them in an actual note with a stamp on it. Imagine that. Don't forget to write clearly enough so uh, they can read it, though. I'm looking at you, KGB. Oh, yes, you're right. My penmanship is horrible. All right, Natalie. Thank you so much for mining the inbox for us. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me. And if you want to read more, um, you can find more questions and more responses to those questions on our website. That's our show. All right, y'all. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. You can follow Shireen at Radio Mirage. You can follow Karen at Karen Bates. And you can follow me at G-E-E-D-E-E-215. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Jess Kung. It was edited by Steve Drummond. And we would be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch team. Kumar Devarajan, L.A. Johnson, and Leah Donella. Our interns are Diane Lugo and Isabella Rosario. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. Be easy, y'all. See ya. And don't forget, wash your hands. Wash your hands. We're spending more time at home than ever before. So now's a great time to finally adopt a dog, right? Socialization is going to be harder because socialization and social distancing uh, are definitely at odds. (laughs) So before you decide to adopt a canine companion during quarantine, listen and subscribe to NPR's Life Kit. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of The Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast. 